0: Up next, the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop after this message. Most people don't realize that cannabis is serious business that requires serious technology solutions. Hi, I'm Terry from Sunstate Technology Group. We are seriously proud to provide technology and security systems that help cannabis companies compete and succeed. From planning and expansion to hardware and daily IT support, I'm here to tell you that having the right technology is critical to security and smooth business operations. Partner with a technology team that understands the unique needs of this industry. For details, visit sunstatetech.com cannabis. sunstatetech.com cannabis.
1: Hi, and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm Snowden Bishop, and I'm happy you could join us. Some of the earliest evidence of cannabis used for medicinal purposes can be traced back more than 4,000 years. A Neolithic grave site, which dates back to somewhere between 2200 and 2500 B.C., was discovered in the Netherlands, and what makes it interesting is it contained large amounts of cannabis pollen mixed with small amounts of meadowsweet, which was an ancient remedy to reduce fever, suggesting the grave belonged to someone with a serious illness who had been treated with cannabis. In 2008, a team of forensic scientists analyzed the phytochemicals and genetics of plant substances taken from a 2700-year-old grave of a shaman in Central Asia. Through various methods, the scientists were able to ascertain that the samples were from multiple different cultivars with similar concentrations of THC, indicating they had been methodically cultivated in a crop for their medicinal purposes. The earliest Chinese pharmacopoeia, which dates back to 100 AD, describes the medicinal properties of cannabis, or ma as it was known then. And early documentation shows that it was used during surgery as an anesthesia and commonly administered for treating a wide range of ailments, including pain, hair loss, nervous disorders, toxicities, scorpion stings, postpartum depression, digestive tract problems, and parasites, including tapeworms, just to name a handful of uses. Cannabis has been listed as one of the 50 fundamental herbs used in traditional Chinese medicine since the practice began. When you consider that archaeologists and researchers have unearthed written evidence that cannabis has been integral to holistic healing throughout Asia, India, and the Middle East for more than 2,000 years, it's sort of surprising that in the practice of what eventually became known as Western medicine, Cannabis wasn't commonly prescribed by doctors until the 18th century, and it wasn't added to the U.S. pharmacopoeia until the 1850s. By the time it was removed from the U.S. pharmacopoeia in 1942, approximately 240 drug producers had made more than 2,000 cannabis tinctures and compounds commonly prescribed to treat hundreds of medical conditions. As modern pharmaceutical drugs were introduced to replace cannabis, Many of those formulations were lost to history, which is sad considering that hundreds of thousands of lives have been lost to dangerous synthetic drugs that are often toxic to systems in the human body. That's not to say that all pharmaceuticals are bad. Some are vitally important for curing acute conditions, But with the resurrection of science supporting the use of cannabis for treating conditions that don't need such harsh drugs comes an opportunity to reinvent some of the tinctures and compounds that had worked for thousands of years before synthetic drugs took over. That's the topic of today's show and we have a returning guest who's here to walk us through the ways in which the ancient remedies will help to shape the future of medicine. James Carberry, who we know as Jimmy, is a cannabis advocate, formulation expert, educator, and glaucoma survivor who discovered that cannabis was the only remedy to save his eyesight more than 30 years ago. In the late 1990s, he helped to open the first legal dispensaries in California Since then, he has trained over 350 people to be professional dispensary technicians, and today as co-founder and CEO of Undo, he holds the patent for a revolutionary treatment to reverse the intense euphoria of marijuana. His vast knowledge of ways in which cannabinoids affect the human body guides his development of cannabis tincture formulations to address some of the most insidious infections like E. coli and other conditions that are resistant to or made worse by pharmaceutical drugs. Jimmy, thank you so much for joining me today, and welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. So you've been a formulator for a while. Yes. And one of the things that I just think is so fascinating is that you've got these remedies that are almost like cottage remedies that work so well when traditional pharmaceuticals don't work. So what I wanted to do was have you kind of explain some of the information that you've been able to gather all of these years that you've been doing this in order to solve some of the medical or health problems that other people have not been able to solve through conventional pharmaceuticals.
2: All right. (laughs) <laughs> wow, that was a mouthful. I know. Sorry. <laughs> don't, don't worry about. it, That's excellent. Good question, and it's like they actually a good hundred questions, I guess. <laughs> but uh, well, I started doing my research when I came down with glaucoma, and it was uh, cannabis was the only thing that would save my vision. I was allergic to all the other drops and such, so that just got me started in researching and doing the science part. And I was in Amsterdam in a, um, antique bookshop and they had an apothecary's like cookbook and I was just thumbing through it and it came to cannabis tincture and it was from 1845, maybe something like that. And, um, it's explained how to make tincture. And it's really easy. It's just brewing it or just letting it soak in alcohol in the dark. And usually about 30 to 60 days, you have a good product. And what you do is just siphon off the liquid. And you use that either internally or externally. It's wonderful on, in both ways. There's many uses to it also. Now, in the 1800s and early 1900s, before Prohibition started, cannabis tinctures was 65% of the market. And every one of the large pharmaceutical companies, I mean, the ones that are around today, had cannabis tincture as one of their medicines that they gave. Bayer was one of those, actually. Very good. That's correct. And Merck? Yep. You know, that's what, that's really what they, they started on those kind of concoctions. And also um, each individual pharmacy, because there wasn't like Walgreens, it was like a little guy who had his own little pharmacy on the corner. He would make his own concoctions and tinctures. And so each, they would vary in quality and um, strength also. So what happened is when the big farmers started making their own, there was no regulation. So they would try to make it as best as they could. So each bottle was exactly the same. So quality control also. And so it came to a point where the hospitals had to go and um, use certain companies' tinctures in their hospitals. Yes, I said hospitals. They used it in the hospital. Um, For all the reasons, you know, antiseptic, all all the reasons, pain relief, um, inflammation, um, you know, uh, remember they didn't have penicillin, (laughs) Um, and so there's a lot of... Good reasons to use tincture as an antibiotic.
1: Well, that is fascinating to me. When you say sixty percent of medicine that was being dispensed by hospitals and apothecary pharmacists and compounders were
2: cannabis-based medicines,
1: so that's what you're saying.
2: Correct. Wow. You know, for babies, for for teething. For, it's um, unfortunately uh, we've had. Uh, cannabis amnesia <laughs> medical cannabis amnesia because you know thousands of years of use medically has been documented so um and specifically tinctures okay there's a it's a doctor called Dr O'Shaughnessy and he was from Great Britain and he went to India and he studied cannabis in India and he wrote reports He began began making tinctures, and he brought cannabis to Western medicine, okay? He is the godfather of cannabis medicine because he saw the uses and lectured and taught and everything. Um, He was an amazing physician. And so he was the first cannabis doctor, really. O'Shaughnessy, Dr. O'Shaughnessy. And um, so anybody wants to research that, check it out. I mean, it's a pretty amazing story. It's an amazing story to go from India and learn about it in India and then bring it back to Great Britain and teach all the doctors of Great Britain and then the world, basically. Right. So what year was that? Do you know? Has to be in the 1820
1: to 30s. And that was a great term you used, the cannabis medicine amnesia, because a lot of what was in the pharmacopoeia before prohibition was cannabis related. And then it was just, it was banished. And to go back and try to reclaim some of that knowledge that was in there would just be an incredible feat, I think. And I know that there are several people who've been working on a medicinal cannacopia if you will to document what some of the different formulas are for and all of that and then there are geneticists who are working on genetic mapping to find out which cannabis remedies or formulas treat certain genetic diseases and I mean it's fascinating science but it's just been lost.
2: Well in 1942 the US government took cannabis tincture specifically out of the pharmacopeia. In Australia in 1977 in the UK in 1977. So isn't that interesting? We really got rid of it in uh, 1942, and then it took all the way till 1977 and in the late 70s for the UK to do the same. Take it off the medical list. That's what the pharmacopeia is, if anybody didn't know that.
1: Yeah. And so much was lost at that time. And almost every country in the world signed on to these drug treaties to do away with cannabis, you know, to the point where some countries still to this day will actually execute people who are caught with it. Like in Singapore, for example, you know, these teenagers come to the US, they get stoned, they bring it back with them and their families lose them forever, you know, and it's just incredibly sad. And I think part of the problem and maybe you know more about this than I do but part of the problem with bringing back legal cannabis is the fact that we are so tied up with all of these international treaties how do we the people who started this whole ball rolling how do we explain if we legalize cannabis how do we explain this to the rest of the world after having convinced everyone else that cannabis is
2: the devil's weed well the world health uh, organization is just doing more work on d- doing that, changing the treaties, getting rid of it.
1: Yeah, there's actually a study that just came out with uh, all of the reasons that it shouldn't be illegal. And I actually have that study, and I was about to publish it, so I will do that, and I'll show that link out. I mean, yeah, a lot of countries now are saying, well, wait, why did we do this? What was so wrong
2: with it? You know, And it was all the United States. <laughs> We well, you want to hear something really interesting? Yeah. Anslinger went in front of the UN and, and talked his prohibition talk. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. He appeared in front of the General Assembly of the UN, and that's why the UN adopted the treaty on narcotics drugs because of him.
1: Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. I didn't realize that I knew that he was the one who pushed for it in Congress in the 30s. He's the one who was sort of in cahoots with all of the other old boys from university days, you know, the DuPont and Hearst and everyone else, he was really in on that and lobbied for the Marijuana Tax Stamp Act. But I didn't realize that he actually was responsible for going before the United Nations. Interesting. Thank you for that. You know, and the UN General Assembly session about three years ago, dedicated their entire um, UN gas, the drug conference, which took place, I think it was in 2006. 16 or 77? No, 16. It was shortly after we had launched at the Cannabis Reporter. And I remember several countries testified to say, you know, we're really considering making this available to our citizens because, you know, we've done the research and it really is not harmful as has been told over all of these years. So it's interesting that it would begin and end sort of with the United Nations. And now with this report, there really isn't any excuse for us not to legalize at this point.
2: Correct. Well, my, my hope and dream is by 2020, we're legal. Um, before the election. And this is why. Um, well, there's a lot of uh, stuff in Congress, etc. And they're working really hard to get it. But um, when there's 35 states uh, that's the threshold when they have to do something about it. And we're getting very, very close. <laughs> so hopefully in um, next year, by next year, there'll be a lot more states uh, either legalizing medically or recreationally or both. I mean, um, there's a lot of legislatures that are really understanding what they can do and how to change the, the war on drug. Co- drugs cost everybody a lot. Um, uh, unfortunately, um, people of color gets get caught up into it automatically. Um, and unfortunately, big business has taken it over. Um, you know uh, I think that once the United States as a group changes the laws so that it's uh, every every state's on equal ground, You know, as far as cannabis goes, I think that will help because then what really needs to happen is I want to be able to grow my plants in my yard and not worry about it. Not, it's not, it's not legal so you can grow it in your yard and see the reason I want to grow is so that I can make my tincture, (laughs) I can make it with the plants that I know where they came from and the goodness that I put into them and the spirit and et cetera. I know that that medicine will help. But I have a feeling that, you know, the, the pharmaceutical lobby
1: has been so powerful in keeping Congress from enacting any federal legislation to legalize cannabis. So it's going to be a tall order to keep the lobbyists away from. The true freedom of the leaf, if you will. You know, I think that being able to just grow it and make your tinctures in the backyard is, is, is you're going to have some some uphill battles there, I believe. But it really feels as though we're headed in that direction. I think you're right. I think before 2020, we will see something. Um, Yeah. Yeah. There are enough people right now. And this new Congress, they're very young. And, you know, I think it's a a much younger group and a much more progressive group. And they've grown up with the idea that there really is no excuse (laughs) to keep cannabis illegal. It just doesn't make any sense on so many levels. So,
2: yeah, I think you're right. We hope. Yeah. Back to tinctures. Now, let's talk about that. See, um, originally, Americans used tinctures all the time from babies on up. And uh, the important thing to remember is no one went crazy. No one was harmed. Nobody. And um, they even if you look up tinctures, it's a real interesting um, history of tinctures. I don't know, remember the site. But it's about the bottles, the actual collector's bottles. And they have a really good article in there about tinctures and what what it was like back then. And um, it's interesting because a majority of Americans used cannabis and didn't think of, twice about it. Didn't think it was immoral, didn't have a problem with other people doing it. They understood that it helped. Helped. And um, that... Um, view of cannabis, we need to bring that back to that. People need to understand it's, it's a gift to us. It's uh, if you're sick or you're sad, it works, you know? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a plant and it can't hurt you. Well, no one, no one has
1: ever died from taking cannabis and I think, what was it I read the other day, 42,000 people just in 2017 alone died
2: from opiates. Yeah, that, that's the worst. That's the saddest part. Because in the 70s, they did research with heroin addicts and cannabis, and it, it helped. Because the overdose rate went down when they did it together, and they eventually quit because of it. it the, using cannabis to do quit drugs is... A long, long history of that. Tobacco use, same thing. Um, the, back in the uh, 1800s, early 1900s, they would mix uh, cannabis leaves, just the leaves, hemp leaves, and make cigarettes out of them. And they would smoke that instead of cigarettes and it works it's wonderful well and something that i find really interesting is
1: that most treatment centers for people who are trying to wean themselves off of opiates still don't embrace that idea yet and i think it's really going to have to be a matter of educating the public about why it's so important to introduce cannabis when you're when you're dealing with opiate addiction and it works it does work and there there are st- plenty of studies underway right now, but it's just not mainstream knowledge yet. And it's going to be a matter of convincing these uh, treatment centers where they have in-house addiction treatment that cannabis is, should not be one of those banned substances, you know, and it's, it's education,
2: education, education. And well, that's why we're here. So that's, I was just going to say people like you, Um, who are spreading the word. Uh, I'm honored to be on your show and to talk to you and to know you because it's it's us little people with big mouths (laughs) that's going to change the world. Yeah, it's just so important. But thank you for that,
1: anyway, by the way. (laughs) And, you know, just getting into those corners of the world where there is still that huge stigma.
2: I've been an activist for over 30 years. And, you know, they... Everybody, I like the people that walk the walk and talk the talk and don't talk and don't walk. You know what I mean? Um, People need to really um, not try to understand. Well, with everything in life, everything changes. And so embrace that change and change yourself so that you can understand other people. And how cannabis specifically? Now I'm talking about because the anti people are like, oh, that's you know, there's a moral issue with stopping cancer. <laughs> I, yeah, there's a moral issue. That's correct. We should be doing it every day <laughs> in every way to stop people from dying, not to put a uh, an emotional or a uh, moral. Thing on a plant that is a given. It's been given to us by God.
1: Well, you know what I find really interesting is that the ancestral memory of reefer madness is still prevalent in our society today. And it just goes to show you how impactful. False propaganda can be and we've seen it recently, too, obviously. I mean, you know, there's so much false propaganda that's trying to influence people in ways that, you know, we haven't seen in our generation, really on this level. But it just goes to show you how powerful a silly campaign that should have had people rolling their eyes actually impacted generations of people and it's still affecting people on that sort of gut level and I think that they don't even really realize why when I get into conversations with people who just don't think cannabis should be legalized at all and I try to explain to them there really shouldn't be that moral equivalence and that the opiate crisis right now is far bigger problem and the people who are making these drugs and lying to the public and nobody seems to care about that and yet they still care about legalizing cannabis because they've been told it's bad and you know that's a tough thing to get over but you know you want to go back to tinctures again (laughs) 'Cause this is so fascinating to me. You had mentioned that there were Egyptian remedies or back in ancient culture.
2: Right. Um, the Egyptians made tinctures. Now I got a really good one for in in Mexico, they would the the ladies would take canvas plants, dry it, and then mash it with tequila, and then take that mash and put it on their bones there if you broke a bone or if you you had inflammation of your knee etc they pack it right on there and the inflammation would go down and so would the pain and that's from mexico and i know a lot a lot of um guys whose grandmas they they did that they they did that to them even um isn't that interesting it is see it's like I said, the amnesia really had a major effect because a lot of this is cultural. A lot of like the medical uses of cannabis is woven into the culture of the people and it's ancient culture. So it's like, you know, it's not in books or, or the, you know, the computer for sure, but a lot of these things have been passed down in their families for a long, long time, and then that specifically go I'll go back to India, who has a really long India and China have been using cannabis for eons and they've written about it and they did studies with it and you know they embraced it as medicine and as a spiritual and a healthful thing well, as early as four thousand b c yep but see, I relate it to the use of all plants. It's, it's like food. It's part of our being human. It's a essential additive to, I guess, our human evolution. I really mean that because our endocannabinoid system, which is the root base of our whole existence, is connected to a plant outside our bodies. And that plant can affect our bodies in such miraculous ways that we need to understand that that's something very, very special.
1: Absolutely it is. And I, I'm i glad that you brought that up because with the endocannabinoid system, what I've learned with number of uh, interviews and just general research, and it should be common knowledge by now that A lot of the age-related diseases that are so common in our society are actually deficiencies in the endocannabinoid system. And once you start giving someone who's deficient some cannabis, it seems like their entire life transforms. It's incredible to watch. And I've seen it.
2: There's a real good, I don't know if it's a study or a paper, by Dr. Ethan Russo and he talks about that exact thing it's how um w- we are endocannabinoid deficient and you get diseases like fibromyalgia except all of them i just you know i could talk for probably 10 minutes just saying what ones they help that cannabis helps go for it yeah well but oh see um who was it somebody uh in one of the states one of the congress people they said that people at, at the age 65 should get their card free, automatic. That's a great idea. <laughs> well, I, first of all, I don't think you should have to pay to get a card. <laughs> you got to pay enough to get your medicine and go to the doctors and etc. I think that the state should definitely give you your card. I couldn't agree more. And how about this? It's for life. I have glaucoma. My glaucoma is not going to get better by next year. Okay. (laughs) People with cancer. Yeah. If they live, thank goodness, they're living a good life. They need to keep that cannabis in them. They need to keep those levels of titration up in their bloodstream so that cancer doesn't come back. I mean, you know, I I have a real issue with the timing. You know, you got your car, Jim, and then, okay, now you got to wait. You know, you got to renew it and pay for it next year. You, yeah. You know.
1: And it's not just the fee to the state. I mean, you have to literally go and spend the money at a clinic to have them tell you what you already know and go to a doctor before that to make sure you've got something current that says you're still suffering.
2: <laughs> right. oh. It's a, OK. The number one uh, reason to get a uh, cannabis card, you know, a medical card is pain in the ass. You know what I mean? If they made it easier for people, it would be so much better. Um, You know, try to work with people. Don't see, but they stigmatize by having programs the way they have them. As a patient, I'm stigmatized. I have to go and do special things that no one else is allowed to do to get my medicine to feel better. That's silly, and it's ridiculous, and it's hurtful, I believe.
1: Well, it's a deterrent, too, for people who just simply can't afford to go spend that money. And it's it's really particularly sad for families who not only, like if their child needs it, an autistic child, for example, the the child needs to get his or her own license. But not only that, then the parents have to because the parents are the ones who are the responsible party and they're the ones who are going to be administering it. So whether they're using it or not, they still have to go get licensed as well. So you have a family... You know, two parents and a kid who needs cannabis, the parents have to go and spend, you know, 300 apiece, a piece and then the child $300. So by the time you're done, you've got $900 and some families just simply don't have that to
2: spend. Well, the more hoops you put up, the harder it is to help people. And that's, you know, and see now here it goes even further because we'll go back to tinctures. It comes right back to tinctures again. Okay. Tinctures are a wonderful way to do cannabis as medicine, both external and internal. We said, I said that. Now, um, if it was easier to go and, to Walgreens and get a bottle of tincture, a certain amount of THC, CBD, the whole thing, it's tested and it has it on the label, what is wrong with that? I don't understand. You need to get a card. Why I could go in and get opioids and kill myself in out in the car? I mean, it's it's yeah, so it's... it makes no sense to me. Well, and then also
1: you know about the state of Arizona um, actually banning tinctures, banning extracts, and saying, "Oh, we don't define marijuana that way. Marijuana is only." Dried flower that you smoke, which is ridiculous. How are you going to have a child smoking marijuana? I mean,
2: yeah, I know. Well, that's why the utility of tinctures, because you can put it in your tea, your coffee. You, you can put it in your food. You can, you can put it everywhere. I mean, that's what's the one most wonderful uses of tincture is that you can be discreet about it. You don't smell up the neighborhood smoking a joint, you know. And you could be effective um, very strategically. Also, you can be really efficient in your medicine because you can do, okay, I did 10 drops today, this morning, I feel uh, good, my pain is, uh, whatever it is, is better. And then you can wait till lunchtime and say, oh, uh, I could do five drops instead and see how that works. You see, it puts, it gives the patient a tool that they can use. And it's not, it's not, not harmful. It's it's easy.
1: Well, and it's also very customized too. It's personal. It's personal medicine. You know, if you go to the drugstore and you get your prescription opiates or whatever, the doctor gives you eight hundred milligrams, well your neighbor has the same exact thing and everybody's different so they're going to respond differently to it and there's really no personalization to those prescriptions you know and the doctors aren't going to give you a genetic test to see you know what your dosage should be it's it's not personal and cannabis on the other hand it's personalized because you can adjust your amount you can control what you take and you know even a small amount is going to have some effect to the good. So yeah, it's really interesting. But you know, um, what you said about Mexico and the tequila and the healing bones, uh, what are some of the other countries that you've learned about? Because I know you're just like a walking encyclopedia about this.
2: Anywhere that cannabis is part of the culture. So like in Africa, I, I just started doing research on Africa. And in South Africa, they have the highest population of cannabis users in the world. I never knew that. I just found that out. I didn't know that either. And it's deeply part of their culture and medicine, et cetera. And I'm not sure if they make tinctures, but they do use, um, they do make preparations. So the chances are they do, because most, um, humans all over the world made some sort of alcohol. I mean, that's, because if fermentation happens without us, so then all of a sudden, hey, that apple, whoa, you know, um, that's how they found out about um how to make wine and such is because they they would sit on the vine or sit hang on the tr- or fall off the tree, and somebody was hungry, they would bite into a fermented apple and get wasted because they were eating a fermented apple. <laughs> and horses do the same. Wow. And uh, elephants do something with some kind of fruit in Africa, and all mammals wanna get high, I think. Well, <laughs> I think it's human nature
1: to want to experience bliss or, or euphoria. It is so much a part of our history.
2: What's wrong with feeling good? Wow. No, I mean, in in our Puritan it, society? No, yeah, it's like, why? Are we, we're not here to suffer. And, you know, we're not here to make others suffer. We're here to feel good and to make others feel good. So life is good. That's how I live my life. I mean, um, and cannabis is part of that, that whole mindset, I believe. And that's what. You know a lot of old white men get afraid of is that people are having a little bit too much fun.
1: Well you know what's kind of interesting you just sparked an analogy for me and that is that we almost treat the euphoria of cannabis or any drug for that matter with the exception of alcohol because it's been so much a part of our, our modern culture anyway But euphoria from any kind of drug is often regarded the same way that uh, more Puritan societies began to describe sexuality, you know, and it's, it's like there's shame associated with it and stigma associated with it, and you know, you're right in a way. It's like, what is wrong with feeling good? Why does that have to be such a closeted experience, especially since it is so much a part of human nature to want to experience bliss or pleasure or whatever? But in our society, it's there's a lot of shame associated with it. And I think that's part of the problem. Or at least, you know, it, it seems as though that might be part of the problem with destigmatizing cannabis and making it okay.
2: Yeah, I agree. Um, well, thank goodness in my lifetime I've seen such an adjustment <laughs> in that kind of the level of stigma that people impose on each other. Uh, pod is a funny thing. Uh, just saying that is exactly true. I mean, you know, um, people tend to—they called it in the thirties—they called it giggles, muggles, things like that. They in the old, the old movies they showed ladies laughing their asses off. It was, <laughs> it was interesting to feel good with cannabis. Goes beyond just your emotional how you feel emotionally or physically. I think it's more of a soul touching kind of experience because that's what makes us get connected. Uh, You, you partake with people and they're automatically your friends. You automatically have something in common, even though they might be from a different country, but you have a connection and that's a special thing.
1: Well, you know, if you think about it, alcohol has been a big part of celebration or grieving or bringing people together. It's like, you know, when were you at a party that didn't have alcohol? And in a way, you know, that's okay because that's our society. It's okay. Um, it's, it's common. It's acceptable and all of that. But I see what you're saying with cannabis because it has been so closeted that, you know, there's almost this secret club, you know, especially in the places where it wasn't legalized, you know, if if you met someone who would partake in cannabis, then if you were partaking yourself, then yeah, there was this club of insiders in a way, you know, I was sort of an an outsider for me, (laughs) I was such a lightweight when it came to that sort of thing that I just never, I, I never really got into it just for the sheer pleasure of it which is what makes it so funny that I'm doing what I'm doing as such an advocate because you know it was just never part of my it was never part of my youth experience I just didn't like being inebriated I didn't drink much either you know so but but it seems as though what you're saying is so very true and I think that we as a society will eventually get back to that place where it is just as acceptable as as alcohol and in fact it might even be more acceptable eventually once people are educated because alcohol can kill you and uh, cannabis cannot (laughs) it's a safer way to imbibe if you will (laughs) yeah but you know i i wonder too about um places like in in singapore um where possession is punishable by death in, before Singapore became what it is today, clearly they were part of that Asian culture, and cannabis was very much a part of Asian culture in ancient times. And you know, you were saying that it's been you know millennia. Well, the very first, um, the very first discovery of the use of cannabis. For specific medical purposes, was discovered in an archaeology dig that dates back 4,000 years before Christ or BC. So that area was not an island. Clearly, you know it was continent wide. So when you when you consider where where they've come from, thousands of years of usage to this this really strict. Um, punitive law about cannabis, how are we going to get those societies to start to um, embrace this as medicine and realize that it's safer than opiates and realize that it's going to help people who cannot be helped by conventional medicine? It,
2: how do we do that? Uh, <laughs> that's a. It's complex, okay, because Asian culture is different than ours and, um, Their stigmas are different. So um, it's more, they look at, well, besides the draconian laws, they look at it as you're embarrassing our family by doing this. You're embarrassing your mother and your father and your grandfather and your grandmother. They are embarrassed by you. And that is, um, I talked to an Asian friend from Japan and I asked him about it. It's like, well, explain that to me. And he's like, well, it's, it's like you, you know, did something really bad in front of your family. And I go, but it isn't something really bad. He goes, that doesn't matter. It's how they think about it. And I was like, wow. It is a matter of perception. You're right. You know, it's like, okay, I understand. And, you know, I passed him the joint and we both laughed about it because, he, you know, he left that culture in, I guess, like everybody, Americans specifically, they don't travel, a lot of them don't travel the world and they're very ignorant about other people's cultures and who they are and how wonderful they are. (laughs) I mean, seriously. And so a lot of people don't, Can't they never left their hometown? Uh, It's something that I don't understand.
1: Well, so their worldview is very limited in that way.
2: True. So, and if they haven't been exposed in the correct way or in the true way about cannabis, then they're they're going to think that all those myths are true. You know,
1: Mm -hmm.
2: just that to the lack of experience and the lack of knowledge usually inhibits people from expanding their world <laughs> yeah i think you're right yeah it is education and you know doing things like we're doing now and et cetera. you know um you teach one person and they teach 10 people and then they teach 10 people and then it goes on and on like a giant pyramid and just like anything um I think I do that every day. I try to, you know, change someone's life, even if it's a smile. um, I try to do that every day because we're all on this boat together.
1: (laughs) Well, a pyramid is a great way to explain what's happening right now with the cannabis movement because when I first started writing about this, it was nine years ago, and the number of people who were really aware of cannabis was so limited back then. I mean I was looking out my windows in the car to see if there were any black SUVs following me around because I was trying in my journalism to call out the injustice of prohibition and the corporate interests that were behind it that still are to this day. And you know, when you're talking about something that hasn't really hit mainstream media yet, <laughs> there there have been people Oft because of that kind of um, education. But the more people who learned about it and the more people who have shared it, now all of a sudden, you know, you figure 80 years, 82 or 3 years by now of prohibition, uh, it, it, the number of people who really understood what was going on was very small, very small, up until probably, you know, 12 years ago when people started to learn. And now it's like this exponential curve of knowledge. And I think that's why as you say, it's likely that we will see an end to prohibition, you know, within the next couple of years. Yeah. At least I hope. I really do hope so. But it would be an interesting study to take a look at the cultures and see if we can reclaim some of those remedies that were used for thousands of years and actually document all of these medicines. I think it would be a
2: fascinating tour to go on. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. <laughs> It'd be interesting. Um, especially today. I I I do want to travel to South Africa. I can't wait um to go down there and just get involved down there. Um, you know, I've been to Amsterdam many times, which has been a major cannabis culture since the sixties. Yeah. Um, and I like their um attitude, that's a good way to say it about cannabis is like keep it to the side just like everything is adults are allowed to do a lot of adult things don't worry about the kids because they're not allowed here get them out of here you know this is an adult only area and don't bring your kids and if if you do then expect them to be exposed to stuff that you will have to talk to them about uh, that's as simple as it gets um especially um, I do, I hope that that kind of thought process comes here. I know in Nevada they have that kind of attitude. So eventually I think they're going to have consumption lounges and coffee shops and things like that there, which is majorly needed because you can't smoke in public, but it's legal. So, you know, uh, I think they're going to take care of that problem real quick. Yeah. Tinctures should be available. So if you want a cocktail, you can make a, a cocktail, an actual drink with tincture in it. And so as far as recreational use, tinctures are a wonderful way to use cannabis, especially if you're putting it in coffee. It's wonderful. It's like, I don't know what to call it. But <laughs> if you like Irish coffee, this is like from cannabis coffee. It's so delicious.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, eventually, it seems as though we're kind of going in that direction with there are a lot of major beverage companies that are, to this day, beginning to look at infused beverages and starting with CBD only. But as the laws change, and especially on a federal level, I think we will start seeing more cocktails infused. And especially people don't want to, you know, ruin their livers, they can...
2: (laughs) Well, they do CBD cocktails now. I know there are a couple of events. Yeah. And that's all good and fine. But if you want to be altered, a CBD co- uh, cocktail is only going to make you tired, basically. That's how I do that. <laughs> You know, But I, w- I had a point about the changes that are coming. You can go stand in the mall and yell CBD and people will come over to you. Where... Five years ago, you would stand in the mall and say CBD and people would run away from you. Probably, You know what I mean? Isn't that interesting? Yeah, Yeah. it
1: is. Well, you know, at the time, I think that people just considered hemp to even be an intoxicating drug. No one really understood the difference.
2: Right, right. (laughs) Well, and then, you know, sprouts has had uh, hemp seed oil in their refrigerators for years. I mean, you know, it's been around... Um, all of a sudden people are like, "Oh, you're not allowed to have it. Like it's been here for years. Start using it. It's been available, you know, just, I think the awareness is going up and that's what I think is a really good thing.
1: Yeah. That's so important. But uh, I remember back in 1991, walking around in New York, I walked into a shop on Madison Avenue that, had a big sign that said hemp sheets. I actually told this story like on one of my first episodes. It was a big sign, said sale on sheets. And then right under that it said hemp sheets. And I thought to myself, how on earth were they making hemp sheets? What? You know, and and my first thought was hemp is illegal. It can get you high. So why are they making sheets out of it? You know, that was my thought. Right. <laughs> and if you think about it, that was what almost 30 years ago now. Uh-huh. And it Wow, have times changed? Yeah. I mean, I was completely ignorant, had no idea.
2: Well, it wasn't part of your upbringing, you know. You're, you know, you're um, entering, when you entered into adulthood, that wasn't part of your um, social circle, too. That's all good. I'm glad you came around. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Well, me too, you know, and I had to be educated. Um, But I found the whole thing fascinating when I first learned enough about it to start writing about it. And quite frankly, it was Jack Herrer's book that... Mm -hmm
2: that got me to start
1: with. And, you know, I was doing some research on unsustainable agricultural practices. I'm really big into climate change and environmental writing, and that's kind of where my roots are. Mm -hmm. And I stumbled upon Jack's book as I was writing an article, and that turned into, you know, a six-part expose on hemp back in 2010. But it was so fascinating to read his take on it. Here was a very conservative Korean War veteran, who basically knew nothing about cannabis or marijuana or hemp. Mm -hmm. And he became angry when he learned that hemp was harmless. Mm -hmm. And that started a whole new phase of advocacy for him. But so many people like him were sold a bill of goods and told lies about it. And, you know, I really feel for the people who've worked in the drug war, in the trenches, killing people and chasing after criminals, and now they know about it. I interviewed an ex-DEA agent whose sole job was to go out and punch down people who had cannabis, and it, 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 I'm sure it wrecked havoc on his brain when he started learning about it, and it was a fascinating interview. His name was Finn Silander, really uh, an interesting guy. It's one of my first interviews, actually. Very but, cool. Yeah, it's a, it's just fascinating.
2: <laughs> Well, I'm really glad to be alive right now because I am so happy about the changes that are coming. And it used to be back in the 70s when good old Jimmy Carter was our president, it looked like we were going to get legal pot then. And I was excited but i knew better not to just like yay um but today i feel more confident that we are going to get it and i feel more confident that the science is going to push that point i think that once people understand the the wealth of uses and also the wealth of help it will be for our earth which is heating up rapidly and if we planted hemp everywhere there's an empty field we would change the world really rapidly because then we could take that hemp and make bricks out of it and make houses and then all the medicines and make
1: plastic textiles. And it's fascinating. I'm writing a white paper right now on it because I'm a big believer that you cannot have a green new deal that will bring us to carbon neutrality within a decade, unless you incorporate hemp there, it would be impossible. And nearly everything that can be made out of petrochemicals can be made out of one single plant. How astonishing is that? And even though they're farmed trees. Think about how long it takes for a tree to grow to maturity so you can chop it down and mulch it using toxic chemicals and vast quantities of fresh water to Mm -hmm. make paper. You know, one tree is going to give you about a ream of paper. Mm -hmm. So when you think about how renewable hemp is, in some climates, you can plant it three times a year. And with very little water and very little chemical maintenance, you know, it's pest resistant and it'll grow anywhere in drought or odd soil. And imagine the paper production without that
2: disgusting DuPont chemical that
1: mulches wood into paper.
2: Okay, you, you just reminded me of something. Back in the early, um, 18, late 1800s, early 1900s, why they started making tincture, and this is really cool because it comes right back. They used the fiber first. The fiber itself was worth more than the flour. That's fascinating. Is that amazing? Yeah. Now it's the opposite. But I don't know what they do with all the fiber that's left over. They should be using that. Yeah. See,
1: unfortunately, we've lost the infrastructure that we once had in order to make products out of hemp. So... One of the things that I think we can get back to, instead of putting government subsidies into the petrochemical industry, like, for instance, the $11 billion that ExxonMobil, one single company gets in taxes being forgiven, plus, you know, the gifts that they get for bringing their offshore accounts back into the United States bank accounts, that goes straight into their investors pockets, because we need their oil for whatever reason, instead of taxpayers giving that $11 billion subsidy to companies like that for oil, why not give them those subsidies if they begin to transition into using their refineries to create biofuel out of hemp instead? You know, why not use those subsidies to reward farmers who transition out of GMO crops into hemp production,
2: which they could do within one season? 90 days. Yeah. As long as it takes to grow one crop, in 90 days, depending on how many acres, they can make gallons and gallons of gas, they can make uh, miles of fiber, they can make bricks or whatever else they can do and increase the bioavailability of that soil. That's the other thing. Can't yeah. make- Better soil. So it's like it's a win win all it around
1: restores carbon to the soil and takes it out of the atmosphere. Yeah. And you know, imagine the subsidies instead of subsidizing BT cotton, which uses extraordinary amounts of pesticides, more pesticides go into the cotton fields than into GMO corn. And it's tragic. And cotton requires so much more water and it requires so many nitrates for the soil. And if they took that cotton and transitioned into hemp instead, and if the cotton gins were given subsidies to transform their equipment to be able to spin hemp fiber into textile, you know, there are all these things that we can do. And I hope that they are being smart about it and composting it so that they can use that for the soil for more hemp and more cannabis. But You know, who knows what they're doing with it. It's a shame if biomass is going to waste right now when it could be transitioning us off of fossil fuels.
2: Right. I agree.
1: Yep. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Well, hemp will
2: save the world, just like Jack Herrera said.
1: Yep, it is our salvation for sure. And, you know, I'm looking forward to the day when everybody knows it and it's firsthand knowledge. It's it's in their vernacular. It's in their thought process. It's,
2: it's, it's in their not, medicine cabinet, their refrigerator. In their their pocket. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And it's going to create a lot of prosperity for a lot of people who've been displaced by renewables, you know, and people in the coal industry, for example, I think that they will be much happier when their fathers don't come home with black lung when they've got another job in a sustainable industry like hemp. Do you know that there's less than
2: 5,000 coal miners in the United States right now?
1: contrary to the lies that they've been told that, you know, they're going to have the coal industry come back. Yeah, the coal industry comes back with automation and nobody has a job. (laughs) The only people making money off the coal industry are the stockholders. (laughs) You know, it's pretty unfortunate. And still a lot of people in those regions where the coal is coming out via automation, they're still suffering with their groundwater contaminated with black ash, you know. So, hey, um, it's a matter of education, Jimmy.
2: Yeah. Yep. Yeah, you got it, Snowden, for sure. Yeah. Anyway,
1: any last thoughts?
2: Um, Just thank you so much for what you do. I really am proud to know you. That makes me feel so good. Thank you so much. I like that you are so dedicated, and I like that you are so professional, and I also like that you listen and you learn. And that's really important. And you know a lot too. So that's even better. <laughs> <laughs> thank
1: you. Thank you so much. Well, you know what, I feel like I eat, live, breathe, exist all around this movement. You know, it's so important to humanity. And I can't imagine right now doing anything else. <laughs> but yeah, and thank you for what you do, because you're an incredible educator and your wealth of knowledge. Oh, my God, you've you just know so much about this. Oh, thank yeah. you very much. We're in exciting times right now, and I think that we can do a lot of good for a lot of people. Yes. Well, I'm really thrilled that you were able to join me today, and you know I can't wait for our next conversation. Anytime. <laughs> thank you. So once again, it is time to bring yet another show to a close. But before we close, I wanted to pay homage to a brilliant scientist and formulator named Jim Yanios whose untimely death is a huge loss for the industry he invented a patented liposomal encapsulation method that is a game changer in terms of bioavailability and through his groundbreaking work he devoted his life to improving human health and discovering better ways for the body to achieve homeostasis On a personal level, his death created a huge void for those of us who loved and admired him as a friend. In the coming weeks, I hope you'll join me for a special tribute to celebrate his incredible contributions to the cannabis science industry and listen to him explain how his liposomal technology works in his own voice. That's it for now. And Once again, I'd like to thank my guest, Jimmy Carberry, for sharing his insights and knowledge with us today. If you'd like to learn more about the work he's doing, please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com, click Podcast to find today's episode, and that's where you'll find his bio along with a link to his website. We have so many people to thank. First, I'd like to express our gratitude for our radio partners, Sunstate Technology, Canisphere Biotech, and Integrated Compliance Solutions for supporting our show, and our media partners at the Cannabis Science Conference, London CBD Group, Cannabis Radio, and NewsBank for helping us spread the word. I'd also like to thank my production team here at the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show for always making us shine. And our programming directors at XRQK Radio Network and Society Bites Radio for broadcasting our show. And last but not least, thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Snowden Bishop inviting you to join me again next week, same time, same place, for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. Until we meet again, be safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day.
0: When you think of chips relative to cannabis, microchips may not come to mind. Hi, I'm Terry from Sunstate Technology Group here to tell you that our chips help cannabis companies compete and succeed. From planning and expansion to hardware and daily IT support, Sunstate proudly serves the technology needs of the cannabis industry. You know that having the right technology is critical to security and smooth business operations. Partner with a technology team that understands the unique needs of this industry. For details, visit sunstatetech.com cannabis.